Welcome everyone to Moving Mountains. This is Sasha, SashaTrust.com. Today we're in for a treat. My guest is the award-winning author, writing coach, and editor who writes in many genres, including short stories, novels, articles, songs, poetry, and plays. She's celebrated from the likes of Dr. John Martini, Jack Canfield, and Cheryl Hunter, among the highly renowned professionals in her field. Over the course of her four-decade-long career, she has entertained audiences by authoring The Mastery Club, The Hidden Order, Quest for Riches, Wanted Greener Grass, and additional works that promote critical thinking and self-reflection of our values in society. It is a pleasure to welcome not only a Susan coach, but a wise soul who can enlighten us in how to approach various aspects of our life. Join me in welcoming Lillian Grace from Australia. Welcome, Lillian, to Moving Mountains. Thank you, Sasha. You've had a four-decade-long career in writing, and you've been writing, you're a speaker, and you also coach other young talents and Susan talents. Before you became a writer, was there another occupation that you worked that segued into writing, or did you always know you wanted to become a writer? I always knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was quite young. That was definite. I went to university and um, I didn't actually, the irony is I didn't go and do a professional writing and editing course at my writing girlfriend did I went off and to, to do a BA and it didn't satisfy me and 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 then I ended up leaving and doing bits and pieces of other things so I've had a, a bit of a motley you know kind of journey but the writing was always the clear theme and thread and of mine you also happen to be a home educator did you teach writing to your children and did any of them embrace that writing career well you know, I think my three children all decided that I, as in their mum, was the writer and that was therefore, you know, they could leverage that off to me and they didn't have to do it. So none of them were really that interested in writing. They, they loved to read and uh, be read to, but they weren't so interested in writing. And, you know, I, they're all good writers. And I think they, they kind of compared themselves with me a little bit and they thought they weren't good, but I've always felt, because I look at writing a lot and I can recognise good writing, and I would say to them, you are good writers. And, you know, but, but they haven't been drawn that way. My son started doing some blogging. Uh, but Wonderful. You also stress some of your work caters to learning and educating oneself on communications. When you're working with the younger talents, and students, what are some communication skills that you see lacking among the young and what are some communication skills that you see lacking among the adults? Okay, so I think one of the things I've noticed, so my first novel that I published was called, or is called The Mastery Club, and it's a novel about five adolescents who form a club to support each other in achieving their goals and dreams. Now, as an a result of writing that novel, I created a program, a 10-week program that 
do upon the ten lessons in the book, and I started to take that into schools. And something I've noticed when in running that program, the modern child's inability to focus and to listen to other people, but they need to always be kind of spotlighted themselves, you know, in the centre of attention. And that's um, been a little troubling, and I think it's something that's a result of our very screen-oriented lives and our very short attention spans these days. So that's one thing. I think we've, we have observed in society a lot of um, drama and upset around the whole business of bullying. And one of the things that I want to teach through my programs is this idea that we will never eradicate bullying because it's a universal dynamic. It's part of how we all learn. And we each play a role on one or the other end of that bullying relationship. I don't like to talk about victims because I think it's a co-creation at one level. But the bullied and the bully, you know, we tend to all play those roles in different times and, and places in our lives. And I think that something that really needs to happen in schools is education around communication and conflict resolution skills so that we all learn the skills of how to communicate with each other, how to ask for what we want, how to stand up for ourselves, how to listen more effectively. Those things are skills, they're actual skills, and yet we don't get much training in them at all. And so then it flows on to adulthood because we didn't get the training when we were children in how to communicate. And most of us up in families, there, there's some degree of, you know, quote, dysfunctionality or, or whatever because we're all just humans doing our best. But as a result, we tend to model on and adopt the communication patterns that we grew up with. And we're not necessarily very good at then managing our own communications. And hence, you know, the evidence of it is in sexual harassment and, um, you know, problems at work and domestic violence. And, you know, we can see so many examples where people don't know how to communicate effectively. Oh, no, I wholeheartedly agree with you because when I had asked you if you had a magic wand and you could change something about communication, you had suggested conflict resolution classes uh, in school. And it amazes me as someone who works in the business world but also out in the social environment, that is one thing that always stands out. And I'm often left just baffled how come adults also lack conflict resolution skills. Um, my sister is a psychotherapist and she works in the area of domestic violence. Comments that has resonated with me is that people have lost the ability to really tune in with their inner wisdom. We've become very externalized, which I know also from my home education um, explorations and experiences that is true there as well because school trained us all to be very externally focused so that we look for approval from our teachers and we look for guidance as to and instructions what we have to do next if everything comes from outside of us and we've become very disconnected from the intuition whether it's the body or the spirit guiding us and um and i think that 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 the trouble that we experience with communication is related to that as a point of reference how were you introduced to conflict resolution in your life for example i happen to be one of the youngest children while growing up that with having siblings around you learn very fast that you need to find your voice and stand up because if you can't stand up in your home 
how about you go out in the real world and stand up for yourself? All right. Well, I was one of four and I was the second eldest and uh, we squabbled a fair bit. But what happened to me, my mother, my mother is a fascinating story in herself. She went through the Holocaust um, as a child and so when she came to Australia, she had a lot of questions and she was a, a seeker for truth her whole life. And in the process, she was studying communication skills and I remember her talking about that. She taught uh, Russian yoga classes uh, from home and uh, so, so her thinking went very deeply into human potential. And then... Look, I can't remember, I've wondered about this actually myself recently. What was the first thing that happened on my journey? But I remember that I attended um, a conflict resolution training in I think the late 80s and I loved it and I was so impressed with it, the practical, simple, common sense principles that they were teaching skills. And so I ended up teaching it a few times myself. When my children were young, I learned about the parent effectiveness training, which is such a fabulous program for educating parents about how to communicate with their children. Just absolutely wonderful and a lot of alignment between the two. So I've had just sort of come and gone in my life um, around this issue. You know, it's just, it, it just kept coming back because I just think it's so important. Tying back to us discussing conflict resolution, it happens to be one of the life skills that we we need to exercise because bullying, for example, is one of those things which is part of life. It's not, it will not be eradicated. And it ties into, and it reminds me when I was looking into your book, The Hidden Order, Can You See It? And it talks about a few topics that are part of the world. And even though they appear to be very unfair on the surface, in reality, everything has its place. Could you please share the inspiration behind writing that book? Absolutely. So The Hidden Order followed on as a sequel for Matt's first book, The Mastery Club. And in The Mastery Club, I introduced the idea of universal laws, one of them being the law of polarity. And the law of polarity is represented beautifully by the yin-yang symbol where we have this um, light and dark, male and female, up and down. You know, everything is divided into these sets of polarities that actually exist on a continuum. They're not too discrete items, you know, that there's just degrees of difference. The Hidden Order, that sequel, what I wanted to do was delve much more deeply into this whole idea of these laws because most people are familiar with the idea of, say, the law of gravity. And we know that it doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. If you're on the roof of a house and you step off the edge, you're coming down, you know. And that's how we understand the law of gravity, that it, it governs all of us. But there are a whole lot of other laws that equally govern all of us that people are unaware of. And so we spend our lives kind of arguing with them in a way that we would never choose to think to argue with the law of gravity. You know, we, we try and make this wrong. So we, we need to understand that everything comes in, in these balanced pairs. And so that applies in our lives. So if we look at one, um, one aspect of life, we could say that it has an upside and a downside. So if we look at war, we could say there's an upside to war and there's a downside. If we look at peace, there's an upside to peace and a downside to peace. Just as peace and war are, you know, opposites to each other to some degree. And then in our own uh, relationships, we can see that ourselves, we have positive traits and negative traits and the other people around us do as well. 
And so we shouldn't become fixated on someone's negative traits. They're always like that. Never nice. They're always blah, blah, blah. You know, so we need to be able to open up our perception and look past our blind spot and say, well, actually, they have that negative trait and they have this positive trait and same with ourselves. So the sister order is a novel where I wanted to explore some of these principles because the more that we understand them, the less fearful we are, the less out of effect of events in our lives we are because we can observe the dance of light more effectively, which is what masters see. You know, the masses see good and bad and continually judging things as good and bad and right and wrong and all the rest of it. And the master sees the dance between the upside and the downside and, you know, how does it... And, it's, and the master steps back far enough to see the big picture rather than just the one little jigsaw piece of the puzzle and sees, well, okay, so this is how it serves us and stand back far enough to see the, the really big picture. And so with the bullying, I touched upon that thing in the first book in the Mastery Club and then I delved into it in more depth in the second book in um, The Hidden Order because it just, it's such an important concept for most of us, you know, that we have, that there is this idea that one, one person might be kind of a bit puffed up and full of themselves and, and really expansive and, and strong and someone else might be a bit contracted and small and weak and not so confident. And that the, these principles, there's also a, another law called the law of symmetry and there's a law called the law of um, compensation, things like that. And so these opposites are drawn together for the purpose of balancing charge, neutralizing the charge between them. So the person who's overly strong needs to experience something that's going to make themselves doubt themselves a little so that they will just drop a little bit, you know. And the person who's that bit weak and small needs to experience maybe a little bit of anger even so that they step up in their courage and their, and their willingness to stand up for themselves, you know. So they can learn from each other in that sense. The overly strong people can learn from self-doubt from the other end and the self-doubting person can learn some strength from the, the overly strong end. And that's at a universal laws and an energetic level why these opposites are drawn together. It doesn't always have a happy ending, as we know, but it is a learning journey, which all of life is, because you know, relationships are about learning and growth rather than for the purpose of happiness to both. And you touched upon the key word I was going to bring up was relationships because when you pen wanted greener grass, it's a book about love and me and having the courage. And you were very generous in sharing that you had transitioned from a union of 29 years into a new one. Could you please share the story which serves as an inspiration for those out there waiting for their opportunity in love or for those that are waiting to make a transition in their life. For sure. Um, this is such an amazing story, honestly. I, so just a little bit of background. I had been um, with someone who I'd met when I was 24 and we had three children together and he was my, effectively my business partner as well and very supportive and we had a strong friendship and a lot of love and we had been through our hard times for sure and had separated once before and had you know had lots of ups and downs in our journey but we'd reached a point in our lives together where we were close to our 29th anniversary and we there was a lot of love between us and a lot of friendship and a lot of respect things were basically good we wanted some different things and so we did some sort of independent living you might say you know 
um, just in that I'd follow interests that he wasn't interested in and he'd do things I wasn't interested in. So we sort of lived a bit independently in that sense, but totally still a couple. And no, no other relationships or anything like that happening on the outside, just the two of us. Anyway, I was teaching a novel writing course and in the process I thought, well, I'll work with my ideas and I had jotted ideas, an idea I'd had sort of eight years ago for a novel called Wanted Greener Grass. And it's about a couple whose who's marriage is a bit flat and, you know, what they do about it. And there's a big twist in it, so I can't give it away. But this particular uh, novel, I, I wrote it during the three months, whatever, that I was teaching the writing course, the novel writing course. And when I finished, a week later, a new man came into my life. Now, that was the month. It was December 2016. And in that month, my partner and I celebrated our 29th anniversary and this new man showed up. And I started very strange, intuitive voice saying, you could have a life with this man. And I would just banish the voice. I think she might go away. I'm happy in my relationship. It's not, it's, it's not perfect, but I'm, I'm happy. I do, you know, I'm not looking for anyone. And who is this man? I've met him for three minutes. I don't know. I'm a stranger, you know. But this just persisted and this man persisted in expressing interest in me and it, it was just it was such a strange thing. And so then I started to um, speak to, I spoke to an astrologer, I spoke to a couple of counsellors trying to understand what was going on with me as this journey progressed. And the message just kept coming to me quite strongly, you know, it's time to complete that first relationship and move into this next one. And my partner at the time was extraordinary because he understood and recognised where I was coming from and he said, we will welcome this new man into our family. We will not cut him off. We won't cut you off. You know, we will we'll be an expanded family. Now, in practice, it wasn't as easy as that because he then did do a very hard journey and was upset, you know, like deeply upset and sad and grieving and angry and went through the whole roller coaster of emotions. So we did have a very difficult time with it but probably as difficult as most people because he had this enlightened perspective that he did eventually manage to come back to, you know. Um, I've forgotten what your question was now, but, but that, that's the essence of the journey. So it was a real kind of, you know, write this novel about a relationship challenge and then and a new relationship, you know, and then in my own life have that experience. <laughs> I was going to say before Sorry, you transitioned before you transitioned to your new relationship do you believe there was some hidden order in your 29 year union that kept you to bind it together in a healthy coexisting relationship yes and and you know what I hear a specific story about that because um, we, you know, we went through a period, my, my partner at that time used to be a bit depressed, you know, prone to depression, not diagnosed depression, clinical depression, anything like that, but just prone to depression of just being a bit down and frequently down low and not wanting to go out and do things and just kind of flat, you know. And I reached a point in that relationship where I was over it and I communicated that. I finally, after a long time of struggling with it, communicated it to him. I found the... I guess the self-love, the self-worth in myself to be able to say to him, look, I love you, but I don't love your depression. I don't want to live with your depression anymore. So literally, either you've got to do something about it or I'm going to leave. And I had reached a point, and this was, this was a long time ago, this was um, 20 years ago now, and I was turning 
I was 39 at the time and I could see my big 4-0 approaching and there I was in a relationship that wasn't fulfilling and all sorts of other things that weren't fulfilling and I just was really determined to create change in my life. And I said to him at the time, I, I said to myself, I deserve better. You know, I deserve a relationship that's rich and committed and all the rest of it. And I communicated to, to him congruently and as a result, he changed. He changed. It was just like an overnight change. It was extraordinary. And other family members commented they observed it as well. And what I realized in retrospect was that he had been playing a role to serve my growth. So rather than me blaming him for what he said, it was like a contract that, you know, while I was lacking in self-worth, he could continue to play that role. As soon as I stepped up and shifted in myself, the whole dynamic between us had to shift. You know, he couldn't sustain his role anymore if I'd shifted. So, so he wasn't locked into that role anymore because I had changed. So it was a really phenomenal wake-up moment for me about the hidden order of relationships. And, and that's one of the reasons that from that point on, our relationship grew much more solid and deeper and more loving when you find this part, you parted on such good ground, you know, because we had a real depth of love and respect for each other, even though there were still things that, you know, differences and so forth that we had. Given your life experiences, Lillian, with relationships, what, hypothetically, if there's a marriage where there, there's a couple that's been married for, let's say, 30, 35 years, and half of that marriage has been what would be considered unhealthy for one another, a toxic relationship. What guidance would you give a couple that has hung together that long and nothing has changed in the last 15 years? Right, okay, so I have two things I would say about that. On the one hand, because I know that in my relationship with that previous partner, I have got to the point where I didn't even like him anymore, which is pretty low, you know, and I was fantasizing about things that could happen to separate us. That's at that worst point in that relationship. So because I have witnessed in my own traveling from that to the point of being back deeply in love with somebody, I believe anything, any relationship is capable of being saved in that sense. However, you've got to want it, you know. And so the other comment that I would make is that Life is too short to live in a toxic relationship. And if there is really no love and no joy and no cooperative growth and whatever in the relationship, then it, one really does have to seriously look at questioning that relationship and that perhaps it's time to say goodbye, thank you, goodbye, and move on and create something else. Because we make ourselves physically sick, mentally, emotionally, spiritually sick if we are continually living in a state of depression or resentment or whatever it is, and we're here to be alive, you know. And so I would encourage people to either do whatever it takes to resurrect the relationship or just call it quits and that's enough. It doesn't mean you failed at all. It just, I mean, it could be said that the failure is insane together if it's not working. So it's just you make the choice that inspires you and that gives you with life and positivity, you know, like a sense of optimism for the future. You sound to be a very grounded individual and spiritual. In your book, Living with Grace, what are the inspirations behind you sharing the tidbits about life? And in any way, does it tie 
to the Venus Project because we also have a lot of respect for the environment. Right, yes. Gosh, Sasha, you've done your research. I just got to salute you with how deeply you've looked into my website and the stuff that I do and have done. So Living with Grace is obviously a play on my, my surname and it, it's, I'm not... Um, I didn't choose that title because I think I'm the these needs by any means. It's actually Grace's surname that I chose for myself and I deliberately changed my surname when I was 21 after having two broken engagements in rapid succession and I decided, I, I could see that I was trying to be Mrs. Somebody and I thought, no, you know, it's time to marry yourself commit and your growth and my mum suggested the surname Grace and I loved it because of my spiritual values um, and because I felt physically like a clumsy person and so I wanted the physical grace and I wanted the spiritual grace and I embraced the name and loved it. So living with grace is, you know, there's lots of ways you can move into it but it's a compilation of articles that I've written since the 80s. So I, actually most of them are, I had written during the 80s and 90s about my, my spiritual journey, my journey as a parent, as a young parent, look at just my take on, on life. I remember one time I had um, a, a problem with one eye, like an eye infection or, or something like that, and a very inflamed eye. And I was really struck by that spelling of E-Y-E for our physical eye and I for our sense of identity. And so that particular article was me just reflecting on our eyes, you know, that our, my sense of identity at the time, you know. And I wrote another article was called There's a Woman and it was about me discovering myself at another level, you know, and, and yeah, my, just, just to me, about my experience, I, my um, twins were born at home and so I wrote an article about their birth, you know. So there's just different, different um, articles that were my take on different experiences. But how that ties into, I've got now, what was the other thing you were relating it to? The Venus Project. Oh, the Venus Project, that's right. So one article I've written that's on my website is called Measuring Worth. And I wanted to, I was, I was inspired to write this because I was observing in the personal development world that people talk a lot about their worth as, you know, when they are t- determining their, their fees, you know. And so therefore the higher your fee, the more self-worth you must have. And I was finding that sort of a little bit flawed at one level. I mean, there's a level at which it does make sense. But there's another level that I thought that could be really distorted, you know, distorted, misused. And so the other thing is that people say that, you know, we don't value things unless we pay for them. And I thought, that's rubbish. That's utter rubbish. I really (laughs) appreciate and value the fresh air and the beautiful, you know, thing around me where I live in the country. If my, one of my most, you know, my inspirational mentors or whatever, someone like Dr. John Martini. If he were to offer a workshop for free, I wouldn't value it less. I'd be there in a heartbeat, you know, to do that, that course sort of thing. Whereas if something's made really expensive and it's outside of my, my capacity, you know, I'm not going to value it because it's more expensive. So anyway, I wrote this article and in the article I raised this idea that um, I'd heard about in the, in the Venus Project, which is a vision for the world where we're not running our, our system on the principle of exchange, you know, I give you this in exchange for that, but actually the world runs on just the sharing and the distribution of resources, of the Earth's resources. And I just, when I first 
It was in 1990s. And I was part of a group um, that was moving to, we were being led by a futurist, talking about the future of the earth and, and the planet and where we're all going, all of it. And I was fascinated by this idea that we didn't need to have jobs, we didn't need to have money, we didn't need to go to work. We could all just do the stuff that we loved doing and, and cooperatively co-create our lives. And, you know, when you first hear, you think, oh, that's idealistic and utopian and it would never work, and you think of a million objections. This man who was leading the Futures Group had come up with an, a very compelling and reasonable response to every single objection that you could possibly come up with. And then we learned, my partner at the time and I learned about the Venus Project, and that was, it was created by Manco Jacques Fresco, and he was developing those ideas. So beyond a little, you know, suburban futurist interest group, this man is creating this vision for application. Do you know what is the most phenomenal thing of all, Sasha? Is that you're President Trump at the moment. I don't know where you and your listeners stand in relation to President Trump. But he is working, from what I understand, from the research I've been doing, to bring in a new system called Nazara Gazara, which is going to hit us in the direction of this kind of world that I'm talking about. It's quite fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that because it, it is time for more people to become aware and take accountability that every voice and every choice has a long-term ramification and we want to move forward and onward. Are there any other projects that you're working on lately that haven't been shared with the world yet? Yes, there are always a few projects. So I'm writing another novel for you. Don't ask me why, Sasha, but this is not to be my trick. One, for around the 12 to 13-year-old, for some reason, I'm so drawn to write about that age group. So I'm writing another novel, and this one had a really fun genesis, because when I was home educating my children, at one point, you know your question about did they like to write, and I said, no, not really, they thought it was my job. So at one point I said to them, let's do a chapter each story. So I'll write a first chapter, I'll give it to you, you write the next chapter, give it back to me, and we'll do it like that. So one time I wrote this chapter and gave it to my daughter Leslie, and she wrote the second chapter and gave it back to me. And it was really interesting. She introduced a character and a dynamic that I found fascinating. Anyway, she lost interest in the project, and I said, can I keep going with this book? And so I basically used what she'd written and just kept going. And I've written two-thirds of that novel. It's called Amazing Jane, and it's about how we are each magnificent human beings. And so I'd like to finish that one. Ideally, I'd love to finish it by the end of the year, but probably next year would be reasonable. And the other project that I have in mind, you know, with my novel Power of the Light, there is a health theme. And the other project that has been kicking around for a few years is a musical. I have a concept for a musical that I want to write that communicates some of the ideas, some of the information I've learned about health that I find phenomenally interesting and important and useful. And I'd like to give those ideas to the world in that form. So those are two, two other projects. So what I need is, um, you know, marketing help and all the rest of it because that's the bit I find difficult. I want to be able to just dive into the writing and the creation and, and somehow have all the other admin and marketing stuff happen so that I can, I can create. And I cannot let you go because you touched upon musicals. When you're writing, if you had to pick between writing plays and books, which one is a more therapeutic experience for you and why? Look, I have written many more books 
and like short stories and that sort of thing, then I have written plays. But, you know, I think the therapeutic thing is not so much the form of the genre, but it's the state you get into when you get into it. So we, we don't always hit the sweet spot when we're writing, but whenever we do, that is so nourishing. I remember one play I wrote called The Wash House Blues, which I wrote for children. And I think I wrote it in just a few hours from woe to go or go to woe without a break. And it just, it was like taking dictation. It just ran through me. I was writing so fast because of, of that flow. And that meditative channeling, whatever kind of state when you're writing, is so healing and so enriching and wonderful that I just, I just love that state. So whatever I'm writing, if I'm in that state, I'm... I'm in heaven. Lillian, thank you for sharing a few different genres of art that you've created, and we do look forward to the new ones that will come out. And I'm hopeful there's a part of me wishing that you're going to write about your two broken engagements, and there's going to be a story about that for men and women to learn oh, from. Oh, you know what? I, I should tell you, I did actually start writing about that. I did start writing about that actual relationship journey and it's kind of been parched because of all the other things I'm busy doing. So I may get back to it. Now I'm even more excited because the whole time uh, since we mentioned it, it's been on the back burner of my mind that she has to write about it. And we will look forward to that. Can you please share with audiences how they can support your work? Thank you, Sasha. Yes, absolutely. So my website is lilianegrace.com which is so the W's or the HTTPS's and dots and dashes and all the rest of it and then it's L-I-L-I-A-N-E G-R-A-C-E dot com lilianegrace.com and people can email me at hello at lilianegrace.com so I'd love to hear from anyone and other than that you know the really most delicious thing for any author and especially a self-published author is for people to buy your book recommend your books write reviews on Goodreads and Amazon and, and if you think it's a book that would be of interest to a book club you're in to recommend it there or a school as a fundraiser since I've got books for youth you know all those things would be just, just wonderful I highly recommend audience members to check out her works because we will be on her various sites that talk about her extensive journey and her work and I loved it because there's always one click that takes you into a whole nother world of Lillian. And today, Lillian, I want to thank you for joining us on Moving Mountain. Thank you, Sasha. It's been a pleasure. As I said, I, I was touched by the research you did into me before we spoke. And, and I've appreciated your questions and your interest and the opportunity to share. It is my pleasure. Thank you. And to everyone, have a blessed journey.